We are continuing in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're speaking about Jesus about to raise Lazarus from the dead. I gave you a new outline. I have a couple points on the old outline that I want to uh, speak about before I get to that. Just so, to put some of the uh, verses in context, turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 33. Read a couple of verses. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And so that's what we're going to talk about here. And I talked about several aspects about what Jesus grieved demonstrating that Jesus was fully human, fully human. He had the full range of emotions. Not only was he fully God, fully divine, but he was fully human, meaning everything that you go through in life, Jesus went through. He knew hunger. He knew grief. He knew despair. He knew all of those issues. We know that, it's, uh, he, that he knew hunger. Even Satan attempted him that in every aspect of his life. And so Jesus is fully human. And the proof of that is here he is knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that Jesus still wept. He still wept. So what does this mean? We talked about various points last week that it meant, uh, and you can go online to get that. One of the points, I've given three previous points, a fourth point that it does is not only does the weeping of Jesus teach us that he was truly a man, fully acquainted with grief, that he was not ashamed of his humanity, but it also teaches us that he was pleased to identify with his brothers. He was not ashamed to show that he was human. He was not ashamed to show that part of his life, that part of his entity, uh, to show that it identified with the humanity. And, and his tears actually convicted some of the people at the grave. It convicted some of the people. Oh, he must have loved him tremendously. Of course, it didn't convict everybody. Uh, but it convicted some. And so, while we have studied the verse, to see what it says about Jesus, what does it say about God the Father? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but here you have Jesus, fully part of the Trinity, God himself, the creative agent who created the universe. We know that, the, that John tells us that everything that is was created by Jesus. God the Father delegated that to him. Well, what does it say about God the Father? That a part of the Trinity, God himself, weeps for us. Well, then there must be a sense if Jesus is brokenhearted about us, that God himself must be brokenhearted. I don't think you can come away with another explanation. I believe that God looks at the creation and weeps for what mankind has done through Satan at this creation. And I think it, it underscores what the mercy of God is about. If you really are uh, studying and praying about God and your relationship with God and your needs, I want to assure you, God loves you. God cares about you. God is brokenhearted about the state of humanity. And when you pray, I want you to know that as a child of God, he hears you. Don't think he doesn't hear you. Just because you haven't gotten an immediate answer 
or an answer comporting with your will. He hears you. I want to assure you, everything that we know about it. Now, the Jews, the first century Jews, had lost the perspective about the mercy of God. They didn't realize. They had just become so legalistic in, in focusing on the law and what the law was and the fact that they were the promised people. They had lost the fact that God was a God of mercy. Uh, and so you see this, that the Father weeps, I believe, weeps over what had happened to humanity. And one example, just one example out of many in the Bible, of how God hears your tears, hears your prayers, is found with regard to uh, King Hezekiah. Uh, and if you would, turn to 2 Kings, chapter 20. I've cited this several times. And we'll look at verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. 2 Kings, chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Okay, you got that? You prayed. Heal me. No. It's not, it's not right for you. I'm not going to heal you. Get your house in order. You're going to die. And I'm sure that many Christians have made that prayer. Many of us have made that prayer. Well, this takes an interesting twist in this story. Uh, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now, I believe that that's an important thing to see. In his brokenhearted weeping, God saw what was going through his heart. And look what happens. Verse 4. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, I'm still there in the palace, the word of the Lord came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. Underline that. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And I'm going to heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and the sake of my servant. And Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil and he recovered. There it is. A poultice of figs. A fix. So if, <laughs> so if you need something, you're having a bad day, that's what you need to make. Write in the Bible. You know, there's a book about Bible cures. Here's one right there for you. Look, he could have made a poultice of mud. You understand? Really. A poultice of mud. The point was God decreed you're going to be healed. Now, the good part of this is that God heard the tears and God responded. The bad part of this is that the next 15 years were lousy years. Amen. They weren't good. They weren't good for Hezekiah. They weren't good for his family. They weren't good for Israel. It winds up in Israel basically being brought into captivity because the whole country devolved into paganism and not worshiping God the way God wanted. So God goes, you want it? You're begging, you're crying, you want it? This is why... And I want to emphasize this. This is why whenever we pray 
at the end of the prayer, you need to say, Lord, within your will. I cannot emphasize this enough. All right? Within your will. Why? This is why you want it. You want it bad. You're crying desperately. All right. I'll give it to you. And then you see a disaster. Rather, 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 wouldn't it be better if God just said it's your time and you say, so be it, God. If this is what you have decreed for me, so be it, God. And that's what we say as Christians. That's why, that's why when we have Christian funerals, it's very different than Christians in the, than funerals in the world because we recognize that God has decreed this, that we are within his will. Don't you want to have a life that in every way is comporting with the will of God? Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to get up in the morning and know that you're walking in the way that God wants you to walk? Hallelujah. Then you don't fear. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you. You're walking in the way that God wants you to walk. And so what a powerful story this is. Uh, and you see this. And so uh, there's multiple examples, multiple examples in Scripture of God listening to the tears of his people. Turn to Job 34. There's a guy who could talk about pain, huh? Job. Job. Job 34, verse 28. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. God. All right, hearing the cry of the needy. Turn to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6, verse 8. <coughs> Away from me, all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Psalm 9, verse 12. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. How do you like that? You're concerned about people doing bad things to you? You're under persecution? You don't have to worry about it. That's not your fight. God will remember that. He hears the cry of the afflicted. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. How do you like that? His ears are attentive to your cry. I, got, I have verse after verse after verse on this. Uh, and so the point of it is I want to prove to you that God hears your cry. God sees your tears. And so if you think, that God is, does not care, he is not listening to you, you are very wrong. All right? You may not be getting the answer you want. Yeah. All right? And that most likely is what it is. Amen. All right? Because the answers are yes, no, not yet. Okay? Not yet. All right? And so that's, the, that's how we have to understand that. I put a quote in there from Spurgeon, the great English uh, preacher, Amen. who said it so great. No prayer will ever prevail with God more surely than a liquid petition, which being distilled from the heart trickles from the eye and waters the cheek. Then is God one when he hears the voice of your weeping. How do you like that? Boy, that guy could preach, huh? Amen. Man, that guy could preach. That's a liquid petition. Let me tell you, God sees those petitions. God sees those prayers. God sees... Uh, your despair and your crying out in need. I want to tell you that in a very positive way. Uh, and, and so you need to be certain and understand that God knows your needs. Uh, and this is one of the things that I believe that we sometimes fail to understand it. 
You know, we have these great and desperate needs, and we pray about them, and we don't see a resolution, and we think that that is that God doesn't hear. He hears. He hears. He hears. The fourth one is, are you kidding? Yeah, that falls into, Lord, I love, I need to win the Irish sweepstakes. Or my football team is in the Super Bowl, you know? Honestly, really, really. I mean, I think that's, that's a good one there, to fall into that category. Are you kidding? All right, now I want to go into the outline that I have for today, which I call part two of these same verses in, in John uh, chapter 11. When I said last week that Spurgeon preached two sermons on, on Jesus wept, uh, and I said, how could a guy pe- speak uh, two lessons on two words? Well, here we are, the second week, and we're closing in on the same thing. But it's so profound to me, and it has uh, such an incredible meaning, not just about who Jesus is, but who God is, and how we interact with Jesus and God. It means so much to us. So what does this teach about ourselves? What, the, what is this verse, Jesus wept? What does it teach about ourselves? It teaches that we are precious in God's sight, that we have gotten ourselves into a desperate condition that's so bad, that is so desperate, that God weeps over us. I mean, think about it. God has created you. He has created each and every one of you. You are valuable to him, not just because there's an inherent value, but because of what he has made of us and what he will make of us. And I want to prove this to you this morning. Why are we precious to God? Well, you'll say, well, he created us. Yes, that's part of the answer. But we have to go back to the earliest chapters of Genesis to understand the nature. Uh, and frankly, when you do that, it is amazing. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter in the book of the Bible, verse 26. So here he is. God is now on day six. He's been busy. He's been busy creating the entire universe. And now, verse 26. Then God said, let us, stop, let us make man in our image. Stop. Underline that. Let us. Who's he talking to? Who's the us? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Three separate entities. You want to know about the Trinity? There's where you get your first understanding of what it is about. Let us. You can actually see God the Father convening uh, this entourage of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so there it is. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does that mean? It means... That in some way we look like God. Honestly. You understand why we're precious? God said, I'm going to take this entity, this human form, and I'm going to make this human form in our image. Wow. So in eternity, God looks there and looks at us and looks at what his creation was that effectively 
is made in the image of God and gave him the authority to rule over this earth. And he sees what sin has done. It has corrupted the very image of God. Do you understand how serious this is? It has blasphemed the very image of God. This is why we are so precious to him. This is why he wants to reach us and wants to save us. Because he created us in his image. It is a powerful, a powerful phrase there that I really never thought about it until I wrote this and really prayed about it. And so the question becomes, we, uh, here's the thing, we obviously, what differentiates us from God? Well, we have a body and God does not. God is a spirit. That's true. But in view of the fact that God became incarnate in a human body in Christ, that is not as obvious as it seemed. So in some ways, when he created us, he made us in his image. So did Christ become like us as God's creative act in the incarnation? Or did we become like Christ in our own creation? I can't give you the answer to that. All right? Nobody can give you the answer to that. But all I know is it says that God created us in his own image. So, let's understand this. This means that our bodies are of great value. The physical bodies are of great value. And we understand that. That is why when we see sin taking us down, sin desperately demoting uh, this image of God, you understand why God weeps. Why God weeps and why Jesus weeps. You have to understand this. And so, if our bodies are of great value, then we need to honor them. We need to honor the way we live how we conduct ourselves, how we speak, because that is what God wants. We, as, I mean, when you think about this, that God has created us in his image, you have a greater understanding of what it means to walk as a Christian, to speak as a Christian. You begin to understand this. And so we know that our bodies, we know that our bodies are in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And I believe that God created us in three parts because it mimics uh, the Trinity, Body, soul, and spirit. And so you understand what the body is, the very physical body that we have. But the soul is that part of man that we would call personality. That is not the part of man that will go to God. That's the spirit. All right? But the personality centers the mind and includes all of the likes and dislikes, all of your, all of your aspects of personality, and your emotions, your weaknesses, your aspirations. Uh, all the things that differentiates us one from another. That is, effectively, the soul. Uh, and the soul is important. What do we do with the soul? How do we honor what God has done with this creation? Even our soul, even in the aspirations, the things that we like to do, and the fact that of, of our personality, that also has to be comported with God's will. And instead, what do many of us do with that personality? We seek the lowest elements. We go out and look for those things that are base and carnal and not of God. And you understand why God is weeping at this creation. That was not what was intended. Uh, and so you see that we follow the worst things instead of following the best things. And so do we strive to know the way of God and follow him? Or are we captivated by sinful thoughts? The sinful thoughts come through your personality, come through through your soul, come through your emotions. That's what's going on. 
And so do we strive to know the way of God, or are we so handcuffed with evil, with the sinful ways that we just continue to wallow in sin? And so it is because we are created in God's image in respect to our soul that we are able to have fellowship, love, and communication with one another. You understand that? Because God created you that way. He gave you a soul that displays these emotions of love uh, and a need to be connected. God did that so that you would be able to have a horizontal relationship with other Christians and honor him. The soul is critical. The soul is important. But the soul isn't that part of you that's going to go to God. That's the spirit. And we're going to talk about that. The spirit. And this is the part of our nature, our human nature, that communes, communes with God and partakes in some measure of God's own essence. I'm going to repeat that. It is your spirit that in some essence is part of God because you are Christians. You have asked God to take over your life and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? It means that in your spirit... God has given the essence of God himself, the Holy Spirit, as part of your life. And so now when you pray, now when you have a need, it is your spirit that reaches out to God. It is your spirit that communicates to God. It's not your, it's not your soul. It's not your personality or your emotion. It is that spirit that communicates with God. Just like when you're here listening to me speaking right now. And you're hearing a word in your heart. I hope you are going, amen. Amen. He's right. That's God speaking to your spirit. You are communicating to God. God is giving me words to say to you that are not my words, that are his words. And as he says that to you, if they are his words, your spirit says, yes, amen. amen. On the converse, if I were up here giving my own opinion, not speaking God's words, here's what you would say. Mm, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's right. I'm not accepting that. That's against God's word. I can't say amen to that. And that's good. That's good. Because, you know, when you watch television and you see so-called televangelists who, who purport to be God's people and you hear them saying things, and you're watching it, and all of a sudden your spirit is, is not good. You've been there. You know, send me $10, and I'll send you back a handkerchief. Yeah. Right? Send me 100 I'll give you a prayer shawl. Yeah. Send me 1000 I'll pray you get a new car. You know how this works. Yeah. And there's something in your heart going, no, 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 no. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of God in you. Now, for us as Christians, we want to have that elevated. We want to have that principle rise up. We want to turn that pilot light up higher and higher and higher so that it becomes a, a motivating, discerning aspect of everything that we do. Uh, and so you understand the need for this. And so you see how God understands this need for us to communicate via the Spirit to Him. Turn to John chapter 4, verse 24. I know my sister will remember this verse because this was a verse that for many years stood over the pulpit in our church in New Jersey. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There it is. When you worship God, you're worshiping him in spirit. All right? It's not about games. 
It's not about programs. It's not about all the things that mankind has created to try to reach out and try to draw people in. And I'm not criticizing that. But at its basest form, where, it's, where the rubber meets the road, God is a spirit. And so when we worship him, we worship him in spirit. Our spirit. To his spirit. In truth. In truth. Uh, and you see this and you understand how God intended us to function uh, as humanity. That is why we are valuable to him. Created in his image. In every way. In his image. With a spirit that contains his essence. So that we can worship him and stay connected to him. Uh, and so you have seen that even in the desperate state that we are now, as, a, as humanity is, we still contain some image of God, even though it is marred. Even though it is marred. Uh, and so you understand this. Uh, and so still, still, God reaches out to mankind. And I want you to understand how God views this relationship. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're giving the Bible a good workout today. And this is what I believe how God wants us to teach. He wants us to teach the entire Bible. Uh, whenever we take a verse, there's no New Testament and Old Testament. There's one Bible. So look at Genesis chapter 9. God is now about to set the decree on what constitutes capital punishment. All right? And look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Why is this important? Noah steps off the ark. God has basically wiped out the entire human race and is going to rebuild it through Noah, God's man. And so he sets one of the first rules that are going to set forward in that world. That is, if you, as a man, shed the blood of another man, then you must have your life taken. Why? Why? Because man has been made in the image of God. That's why man is valuable to God. And so you kill the man, you've marred the image of God, then there's a penalty to pay. There it is. There it is. Right there. You see it. Now, now you see God speaking here as it relates to capital punishment and how he views uh, what we do to the body of other men, how we do what we do to their lives. Take a look at James chapter 3. Going all the way back. James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? I mean, really. Is that a great phrase? So there it is. There it is. God's saying, I created you and I gave you a tongue. The tongue is meant to worship me. The tongue isn't meant to curse your brothers. The tongue isn't meant to blaspheme other human beings, to rip other human beings apart. The tongue is meant to elevate man. That's what God created you for. In his image. In his image, just like you saw it as it related to uh, capital punishment. And so even as we stress man's sinful and depraved image, we need to be mindful of these characteristics. Why God weeps 
This is why he weeps. He created you for all these elevated purposes, and instead we have blasphemed the image of God. And so what does it say that Jesus wept? It speaks, uh, it speaks to the fact that man has desperately marred the image of God. And this is certainly a, a state to be wept over. And that's what God, Jesus was weeping over. He looked at the creation. He was there. He created us at the very beginning of time. He looked. He knew what the creation was intended to be. And instead, he saw death, sin, desperation. And so even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yes, the despair and gloom over Lazarus will end, but the despair and gloom over humanity still exists. And Jesus knew it. And that's why Jesus wept. This was not what it was meant to be. Uh, and, and so a few days after Jesus has raised his Lazarus from the dead, a few days later, and we're going to come to it, uh, we will celebrate in the Bible Palm Sunday. Of course, they didn't call it Palm Sunday there. But Jesus would enter Jerusalem for his last time riding on a donkey. And it would be a glorious entrance. Thousands of people will come out as Jesus will ride into Jerusalem for the last time. They will take off their garments and throw them before him. They will take palm, palm branches and lay the branches over them. And as Jesus will walk in to this glorious reception. You would expect, you would expect Jesus to be filled with joy. This is amazing. This is why I've come. This is exactly what I expected. This was the intention of God. Jesus should have been filled with joy. And what do we find? This is not what we find. Rather, we find that Christ knew that the cheers of the people were shallow. That it was filled with unbelief. That sin had overtaken them. That they would be weak. That they would not step up. And turn, if you would, with me to look at Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Underline it. He wept over it. Yes, you're Jesus. God himself. Weeping. Weeping. Displaying the emotion. The personality that, we, that God has given us. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He wept. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that in 40 years or shortly thereabouts that the entire city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by Rome. That they would go to the precious temple. They would go to the place where God had decreed that all of the worshiping should take place. That the Passover should be celebrated. And instead, the Roman soldiers would take the temple apart one stone upon another. That's what Jesus says there. One stone on another. Now let me tell you something. That's an incredible prophecy. Because when you take, when you come in and destroy a city in a siege, you don't take them down one stone upon another. You come in and just blast a hole and come through. But the prophecy here was profound. Because here's the deal. There was so much gold in that temple. 
in the very stones that the Roman soldiers took the stones and burned them at a high rate of, of temperature so that they would melt and they would collect the gold. And so what was left? Nothing. Nothing. And I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to get into this tomorrow with the Monday group. But God had decreed in Leviticus that the Passover had to be celebrated in the temple. You got that? The Passover had to be celebrated in the temple. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If the Passover had to be celebrated in the temple and there's no more temple, what does that mean? The Passover is over. Amen. You understand? It should send chills up your spine. It's the Holy Supper now through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see how God works? Don't you think that God could have stopped the desolation of that temple if that was his will? But no, he underscored it. He told them, God has come to you today and you have refused God. And so what's going to happen is there will be a judgment. And the very center of your worship, the very center of what you stand for, the temple will be taken down one stone at a time and the fact that you cannot celebrate the Passover there means, folks, the Passover is over. You understand that? Now, I say this respectfully. I understand that our Jewish brethren still celebrate the Passover. And when they do that, that is a cultural thing. But if we're listening to God, as God has outlined his, uh, outlined his will, it's very clear. God says that the Passover has to be celebrated with the death of a lamb, celebrated in the temple. There's no more use of lambs. They take a dry bone of a lamb. That's how, that's how it's celebrated today. And there's no temple. And if there's no temple, there is no Passover. And so you understand how God how speaks to us. And so you see this image of Jesus crying over Jerusalem. That's why Jesus wept. You see how profound this verse is? Jesus weeping. This wasn't a mere act of sorrow for his friend. His friend was going to live again. But his friend would die again. Because that's what had infected the human race. Death in every aspect of it. And so you see this. Turn also while we're looking at this at Romans chapter 1. Verse 21. And God is talking here about mankind. This is about mankind in general. Even before mankind knew about Jesus, but how he's pronouncing a judgment upon mankind. The invisible qualities of God who, who should have been available and visible to all humanity. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the, glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You understand how God looks. That's why God weeps. He knows why he created you. In his very image. To honor and worship and seek him. And yet what have we done? We have debased humanity. 
We have debased our mind. We have debased our personality. And you see it there even to the extent of worshiping idols. Worshiping idols. And so what does God say? That's where you want to go? Go ahead. Just like he said to Hezekiah. You want another 15 years? Go ahead. You understand that. And so that's why when we come understand these, these two words, Jesus wept, we understand how profound it is, how it speaks to us today about how God loves you unbelievably and cares about you. And when you pray and when you cry, I want to assure you, each and every one of you, that God hears that prayer. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the words that you've given us. Lord, I ask you that these words be amplified and grow in our heart as we understand more and more the aspect of your love, how deep and profound it is in every possible way. Lift our people up, protect them, Lord, and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.